Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of JM Rewind here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Uh, last week, I had the opportunity to speak with Dr. David Rossmarin of the Center for Anxiety. Uh, they run events in our community for anxiety and related disorders and uh, are making a lot of progress in a lot of very important areas when it comes to uh, good mental health in our community. Dr. David Rossmarin and the Center for Anxiety are focused on this edition of JM Rewind here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Well, we learned about a unique and uh, interesting um, organization, institution, service in our community uh, just a few days ago, and uh, hence we invited our two guests who are here this morning to the air to discuss it. Uh, we have um, Dr. David Rossmarin, an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and founder and director of the Center for Anxiety. The Center for Anxiety has four locations. We'll outline them for you in a moment. He is a board-certified psychologist, clinical innovator, and prolific researcher who's authored over 50 peer-reviewed publications and 100 abstracts focused on spirituality and mental health. Clinically, Dr. Rosmarin provides behavior therapy for patients presenting with anxiety, psychotic personality disorders while attending to relevant spiritual factors in treatment. His work has received plenty of media attention. He is here this morning. Doctor, welcome to JM in the AM. Thanks for having me. A pleasure. And he is uh, joined by David Braid, who is who was introduced to us as program manager for the Center for Anxiety. David, welcome to you as well. Thank you very much. Good morning. Tell me about the history of the Center for Anxiety. How long has it existed? Well, it's been an eight-year project so far, and uh, I've uh, been living in Boston right. um, since then. Um, was uh, there for a fellowship, and I decided that something's got to be done about uh, Jewish mental health in a very serious way. So you knew you had our community in mind when you founded the institution. That's correct. That I did. Boston. Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Rockland County today. Those are the four. Four locations. And what is it that's unique about our community that would lead someone in the medical field or in the, you know, around the medical field to think that we need a center for anxiety? Well, I get that question a lot. And <laughs> the answer is not that Jews are more anxious than anybody else. Because oh, I can make that <laughs> argument, you know. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Um, the, the answer is that um, there, is, there are... Uh, many individuals who are providing top-notch therapy in the Jewish community. But we don't find a community. We don't find a place that um, can really service on a broad level the mental health needs of the Jewish community uh, in a big way. We find a lot of individuals who are providing great therapy, like I said, but we don't find a, a group of individuals who know the spiritual and religious factors that are important and uh, can provide top-notch quality care. Because it would sound, based on the way you just described it, that there are certain things about our tradition, about our heritage, about our community orientation, which might lead specifically to situations of anxiety. Well, I think it's twofold. You know, spirituality is a context in which people can have uh, symptoms, they can have concerns. It can make things worse, in other words, as you've alluded to. It can also make things a lot better. Spirituality is a very important resource for people dealing with mental health concerns, whether that's depression or anxiety or things that are more complicated. Um, 
it's very widely used. A lot of people turn to God, spirituality, when they're in times of distress, and that can make a big difference in terms of the uh, course of their symptoms and their connection in general. And in psychiatry and in psychology, we don't attend to that. We're not, we're not trained to attend to that. We're trained primarily with a secular approach. So not attending to that is, in many cases, a problem. In the Jewish community in particular, it's a big problem because it's a part of many people's lives. And, and those who are individuals who try to help those who are suffering, I'll use that word, from these issues— they might be able to incorporate because of their own background, you know, some of the things you're talking about. They may be able to guide someone with the spiritual background that you, it sounds like, Correct. you know, require your staff to have. Uh, but yet there's no, that's more of a one-on-one situation. It's not a, what would you call it, a, a vast service provider? How would you refer to it? It's not a movement. Right. It's not a, they're individuals and often they're full. It's very difficult to get into their practices. There isn't and they have limited time, limited time, limited resources, and also limited ability to service their patients. Sometimes patients need more intensive services, like an IOP or an intensive outpatient program. Um, so, to be able to provide higher level service and quality care on a grand scale for a community of millions of people, you need an infrastructure. Mm. Center for Anxiety, Brooklyn, Manhattan, Rockland County, and Boston. We'll talk more about it in detail in terms of exactly where they're located coming up. They have an event happening on Wednesday, December the 6th, up in Muncie, New York. It's called Mental Health, What Are You Eating and What's Eating You? And we'll talk about the relationship between eating and, uh, I guess, anxiety in just a minute or so here at JM and the AM. Uh, eating is a big, very big topic, you know, in the Jewish community. I don't know if you're aware of that. Indeed. Do you have anxiety? That's a good question. Um Everybody has some level of anxiety and stress. Because you don't come across as somebody with anxiety. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. I've been practicing what I preach. You though. New Englanders have that, I guess. <laughs> uh, I guess so. New Englanders have their own stressors. But uh, people can do can deal with their anxiety. People can deal right. with stress. Managing it is new. And manage it and live really productive, happy, wonderful, connected lives. But there are certain strategies that you've got to be doing. And if you're not doing them, then it's going to be... A mess. Right. Uh, and those strategies have to become habitual, I guess, because, you know, otherwise people may just throw up their hands and say it's impossible to deal with them. I mean, it's a process, right? It takes time. 100%. It's and, a process worth investing in. Right. And time commitment sometimes can be frustrating. Indeed. To say the least. Um, the, uh, so, all right. So we talked about the, the uniqueness of our community. You mentioned a moment ago how spirituality can often help people get out of situations that we're you know, alluding to or describing here. And... I noticed that that it seems that in, I don't know, other religious communities, and this may just be as an outsider that I'm that I'm, you know, hearing that I'm that I'm assuming this, it seems that other religious communities in fact incorporate spirituality better than we do. That when they turn to the spiritual aspect of their existence or the spiritual aspect of their community, it really changes them into happier, calmer people. And I don't know if that always happens like that in our community. You know what I mean? Are are there other communities who might be dealing with this better from a spiritual aspect than we are? Yeah, it's a good question. It's really a scientific question, an empirical question. So here's where the researcher in me dons his hat. Um, We've done some cross-cultural, cross-religion research on the way that Jews and non-Jews engage in religious coping. Um, What we found is on the positive side, it's pretty similar that both Jews and non-Jews engage in... um, a process of uh, turning to God, turning to their faith when they're faced with mental despair, when they're faced with 
difficult life situations, right. and that those are equally helpful. What's interesting, though, is that we found that when people are struggling with their mental health, well, struggling with their spirituality, rather, mm. a spiritual struggle, that's much more normative within the Jewish community than among non-Jews. Why? So Do we know why? I think that... <laughs> I have some speculative Is reasons. our spiritual existence much more complicated than other it people's spiritual existence? We've definitely been through a lot over the years, over history. You just mentioning it. <laughs> That's right. Today is a significant day in, right. in Jewish history. So um, I think that it's more normative for us to struggle because right. of the the life challenges that we've had in terms of history. Also, life is very complicated today. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, I think anybody listening is, is, is has in mind one of two things, either the financial burden. I was just going to say tuition. Right, which is, of course, <laughs> you know, the, the number one topic, no matter what you're discussing. And number two, because of the, the way that we, uh, that the majority of the people listening are guided 100% by our religion, right? Essentially, everything we do, if one would think about this, you know, consciously, uh, everything we do on a daily basis is basically 100% guided by religion. What we eat, where we go, how we behave, et cetera, et cetera. And that might be a pressure that, that others don't have when it comes to their spiritual existence. Well, it's a pressure, but it's also a resource because that means that there's always someone to turn to and there's always a way, a spiritual way to frame one's situation in one's life. You would argue then that there was no center for anxiety, no umbrella group that dealt with this for our community till your organization started to exist? Well, that's a good question. There have been public services that are um, in, a bit of, in a bit of a different sector, frankly. We are a private service. Right. That, the ones you're referring to basically under Jewish organizations. That Her, type of thing, correct. Right? And those services have done a great job deconstructing stigma in our community. Right. They've provided um, a, a place for people to recognize that there are issues. Um, in terms of providing high... Uh, very high quality care on a consistent basis to complex patients. I think that's something that we've done uniquely well on a private basis. Right, understood. All right, Dr. David Ross Marin, am I pronouncing that properly? Perfect. He's here uh, with us, Center for Anxiety. As I mentioned, David Braid, the program manager of the uh, Center for Anxiety, joins him this morning. David, good morning again. Um, which was the first of the four? Do we know which was the first of the four of the Centers for Anxiety? That'd be Manhattan. It was Manhattan. That sure. was the first place. I don't know. I don't know why I thought automatically it would be up in Rockland County. I guess because it identifies more. Uh, I rather Brooklyn identifies more with our community. That was number two, and, and that's located on West Fifty Seventh Street. The Brooklyn one is on. Uh, uh, is that the Bedford Avenue? That's correct. Bedford Avenue in Brooklyn, up in Rockland County. They're on Route Fifty Nine and in Boston on Mill Street in Belmont, Massachusetts. That's where you'll find the four centers for anxiety. We mentioned there is an event coming up. On the 6th of December, what are you eating and what's eating you? So now we learn from you that there is a connection between anxious behavior or what seems to be, you know, symptoms of anxiety and our diet. Is that your, is that what you're proposing? It's definitely one piece of it. The reason why we're doing that program up there, we have a new eating disorders specialist who's up in our Rockland County office. Eating disorders are rampant and extremely dangerous. Rampant means what? And I know that's hard to put into numbers, but... Rampant means because you're hearing about it on a daily basis? Like, how, why are you saying it's rampant? They're, it's very widespread. Um, every day? Every day there's someone who's coping with an eating disorder, sure. No, that I get, but I'm saying you're made aware or dealing with at least, you know, a case or two a day? We, well, it's interesting. 
we uh, since we took on this uh, this doctor, mm-hmm. an officer named Doctor Laura Rainey, extremely talented, Harvard trained uh, eating disorder eating specialist. disorder specialist. That's that is her specialty in the Rockland office. Since we brought her on staff, um, we've been getting tons of calls because people see that there is an answer. That was another thing I wanted to mention. People call the, the, the people call in when we provide a solution. It's the the base rates are there. Right. They, the, people come out of a network and say, "Hey, I want help. Can you please assist me?" When the solution is present, and that's really what we're trying to do here is provide real solutions to mental health concerns in the Jewish community. All right, and based on the fact that you've brought her in, there must be then a connection. Again, remember, it's a layperson analyzing this here. There must be then a connection between the prevalence of eating disorders and the prevalence of anxiety and its symptoms in our community. That is definitely true. They are certainly comorbid. A lot of people who have have eating disorders also have comorbid anxiety and depression. And I was just going to say, well. can you separate the two? Anxiety. I mean, again, clinically, does one separate the two? Or are they anxiety and eating and depression and depression? Yeah. Sure, those would be three different things. Sometimes people come in and they're t- depressed and they're not anxious. Really? Some, sure. Um, it's uh, not entirely common, right, but, but it's, it, not uncommon. It, it's not uncommon. Um, and same thing with anxiety. Sometimes people come in and they're just anxious, and mm-hmm. but they're happy, but they are dealing with anxiety, too much anxiety and stress on a daily basis. Right. How do we know? <laughs> I'll tell you, some of these things sound, uh, seem so abstract to me. How does one know if they are suffering from anxiety and not just you know, at a very high energy level of dealing with life. Well, speaking to a radio host, I'm not sure. (laughs) Uh, So there are a couple of things. If it's impeding your ability to function day to day, if it's impeding your enjoyment of life, if it's getting in the way. um, Can't get out of bed. Well, can't get out of bed is definitely a sign. But I would say even before then, if it's um, getting the way of your relationships, are you finding yourself tense on a date with uh, with the spouse? Are you finding yourself um, getting edgy when you're home and you're spending time with your kids? Losing patience. Yeah, losing patience. Are you finding yourself making poor decisions at work and sending an email before you end up regretting afterwards, before you should have sent it, should have looked it over? Um, do you have time for things like exercise in your life? How's your diet? You know, There are a lot of basic questions that we would ask somebody. Can diet and exercise rid someone of of anxiety symptoms? They can make a massive difference. A person exercising in a serious way four or five times a week can make a huge difference for anxiety, but not for everybody. So it's not a panacea. You know, it's not prevalent in our community, exercising. That I'm aware. <laughs> you don't have a gym in each of these four locations, do We've you? Thought about it. At it's some actually point. not a bad idea, you know. <laughs> you think about it, treadmill. I mean, my gosh, if people only realize the benefits of more physical activity, and it doesn't necessarily take a gym, you know, long walks is also a pretty good, uh, a yeah. pretty good way to uh, deal with these things. I'm from Boston, so it's going to be running or jogging. <laughs> right. to me, but, uh, Understood. Uh, the event on Wednesday, December 6th, is happening up on Route 59 in Suffern, New York. It's the Rockland County base of the Center for Anxiety. Uh, mental health, what are you eating and what's eating you? Join clinical psychologist Dr. Laura Vranny for an interactive workshop on the challenges of holiday stress and healthy eating. Um, it is a women-only event, we should mention, right? The yes. women-only event for information. The uh, Center for Anxiety has a website, centerforanxiety.org. I assume all four locations are on that site, right? Sure. Plus is a phone number, 1-888-837-7473. That's 
888-729-3773. We have both uh, Dr. Ross Marin and David Braid in our studio here this morning at JM and the AM. And we should go through some of the things that are, that are constantly uh, uh, happening courtesy of your four locations. Um, so we mentioned December 6th, obviously. On December 20th, there's going to be a panel uh, session on the topic of mental health and the gap year in Israel. That's an interesting one. Cool. Is there a, a correlation? A correlation? You mean people who go to are, are Israel? You, are you seeing? Yeah, are you seeing more cases or situations than one might th- one might think about those who've spent ten months in Israel and are now returning? I was just going to say, going to Israel is not the problem. Right. It's the return. It's it's always on an the, adjustment. Is, is the adjustment coming home can be extremely challenging. In nineteen year old kids can cause certifiable. Symptoms. Diagnosable anxiety disorders, depression, and more—no question. Do we know why that is? Um, it's a big ch- cultural shift. Sometimes there are religious growth that happens, and then they have to as- assemble that into a family structure when they come home. Sometimes there's tensions around that. Also, just starting college. A lot of people starting a place, even a place like like uh, Yeshiva University or Stern, that's going to provide a, a lot of support, and they do a very good job at it there's still going to be an adjustment to living in New York versus being in Yerushalayim or somewhere else and studying full-time. There's no question. It's a huge challenge. Recurring events uh, that you're in charge of include in your Manhattan office on West 57th Street an OCD support group. Now, this is, frankly, when I was first introduced to you by telephone, I thought this would be the number one topic because, uh, you know, OCD, again, with the the 100% – uh, guidance of our tradition and our regulations guiding us on a daily basis, um, I, I can see how OCD becomes a big problem. It's a really interesting question. Um, I've done quite a bit of research on the subject of OCD and religion and spirituality from an empirical lens. And I would expect you to tell me that Orthodox Jews have a larger percentage of OCD situations in their community than any other religious group. You are not the first person to expect that, and you're also not going to be the first person to be wrong. It's not true. Our levels of OCD and anxiety and depression, for that matter, and pretty much everything else, are the exact same that they are in other communities. Hard to believe. It is other co- Other communities do not have, you know, candle lighting time when everything must stop, which, right. which hangs over you. Right. Does not have a situation in April where you must rid your house of every crumb uh, you know, and of course, I could cite another hundred <laughs> examples, but those, but those are two really big classic ones. You know what I mean? <laughs> sure, absolutely. I get it. There are a lot of aspects of uh, Orthodox Judaism that look like OCD, but they're not driven by anxiety for most people. By the way, I'm not the only one finding this research. There have been about 25 published empirical studies to date on the subject of OCD and religion. Right. And we do not find that any religious group worldwide has higher levels of actual OCD or anxiety than non-religious groups. The only thing you do find, and this is important, is that when religious people have OCD, their OCD often takes a religious flavor. So you mentioned what time Shabbos comes in right. and cleaning a house for Pesach. Becomes a big source of anxiety. Exactly. Those become huge areas. Kashras becomes a big right. area. Keeping the kitchen kosher. Right. Um, that can be an area. There are, no, there are other areas Even as well. the way some people daven. 100%. Prayer is, a, prayer is probably a number three uh, OCD, area of OCD that we see at the Center for Anxiety is a repetition of prayer. Right. More common among the men than the women, right. I say. Well, they're doing it with more regularity. 
Um, and speaking of men and women, that OCD support group is open to both the second Thursday of every month in your Manhattan office. In the Brooklyn office on Bedford Avenue, which is what neighborhood is that officially? It's in Flatbush. Or in, yeah, Madison, technically. But. Uh, there's a Lunch and Learn that happens the first Tuesday of each month. Uh, is that general with different uh, guest speakers about parenting? Yeah. Our uh, our office, our staff are very well trained in what they do. They're also um, scholars, and a lot of them are um, uh, have areas – everybody has an area of expertise. So that is a lunch and learn. People come, they grab a bite to eat, and they learn about an area which is relevant to mental health and how it can impact them and what they can do about it. And you also have an OCD support group there in the Brooklyn office that meets on the first and third Wednesday of each month. We'll give out the uh, web address in just a moment. And up in Rockland County, there's another OCD support group that takes place as well. Uh, obviously, based on the number of support groups you're providing, we see how prevalent it is in our community. Indeed. And those are free groups, by the way. People can, uh, they just have to tell us that they're coming to RSVP, but uh, there's no cost for those. For those. Uh, do people find these types of treatments expensive? Do insurance companies help out most uh, families who have decent plans? How does yeah. this work? Great question. Um, I don't think people find our program specifically expensive, and the reason why is because we're not we're not an open uh, pit. I mean, we uh, what we, we're providing time limited services that are effective, um, such that people don't need ongoing psychotherapy for years. Our timeline is usually weeks and months, wow. not years. So the overall cost is much lower than you would in, see it in other in other areas. So if someone walks in with a severe OCD problem within months, they can be Managed, they well, can be severe. Is more complicated. Well, it's also a relative term, right? Within months, if we're not seeing progress, then we either change things around or we refer them to somebody else who can help them. All right. How do you find your personnel? Um, and do you need unique personnel, or you know, those who've been doing one-on-one therapy for years would fit right into your practice? These are great questions. In terms yeah. of finding personnel, um, we um, a lot of people apply for our positions. We have we have a lot of applicants, and uh, there are a lot of people looking for jobs within a network that can provide them with um, professional development, with opportunities to see great patients, with training. We train our staff. We're involved with them. We have didactics. We have a, a course every single, uh, every week. We have meetings um, to review cases. We're collaborative. People um, transfer cases to each other often because um, to change things up. Sometimes we'll have an, a senior clinician consult on a case so that a junior clinician can continue to do their work. Mm. So we have all sorts of innovative ways of engaging our staff with each other and with the patients in order to increase patient care, and our, our staff love that. I was not aware of, for instance, OCD support groups in our community till I was made aware of your center. And I'm wondering if there are people in our community who would prefer and gravitate toward a group setting more than the one-on-one. Often in our community especially, one might think the one-on-one is going to be more attractive for right. obvious reasons confidentiality, who you might meet, et cetera, et cetera. But I wonder if there are people in our community who would prefer the group setting and feel more comfortable addressing their problem at first in that area, in that type of atmosphere, than doing the one-on-one. It's a great question. I actually asked that a couple years ago, and we did a study about it. I was surprised myself that the results of that study indicated that people from the community were equally likely to want group as well as individual therapy. So it's 50-50. That's what I found. But in practice, in our programs, we have found that people are more likely to want individual than group therapy. Mm. Those are the calls that we get. Why the disparity? I'm not sure. Interesting. Um, All right. Uh, Everybody out there, uh, if you want any information about all of this, there is a uh, web address, centerforanxiety.org. And... um, David Braid, 
Let's get you in on the conversation. People go to the website. What can they find? What type of information will they find there? So our website has a lot of information, detailed information. A lot of our community events are posted there, as well as a phone number, sign-up uh, scheduling, as well as information and bios about all of our therapists. Yeah, I was going to say, I assume the staff is outlined there for everyone to learn. 100%. We have about more. 25 therapists across, or staff members across the four locations. The three main locations in New York are really the ones um, that we focus on. The Boston is really relegated Dr. Osman and his Harvard staff up there, as well as the research that goes up there. But our, our three main locations are really Manhattan, Flatbush, and Muncie, which is the three that you alluded to. Right. And any and, information... And if, and if you follow the growth of the Jewish community, soon you'll be in Lakewood, I guess, since since tens of thousands of people continue to move to that area. <laughs> true. We don't want to give away any, any right. new expansion plans. I was just but, guessing, uh, don't worry. <laughs> definitely on the radar. But there's plenty of people down there that do top quality care. We really are focusing on areas where we feel... And we're Rabunum and and Asganum asking to ask us to come in and feel and fill a dearth of care that's in their community. Um, probably, just, probably nothing more important to members of the community than to have the rabbinical endorsements. I didn't even ask you about that, but I assume there are a lot of rabbis who are enthusiastic about your work. Sure, that yeah. was the reason we started in the first place. Right. Actually, so pretty cool. Yeah. So our website has a lot of detailed information. Also, it's not just about um, treating people when it's too late. There's a lot of information and awareness and educational information on the website as well, as well as um, information to help people that are around others that have issues or things that are going on in their lives, strategies and coaching information that allows them to be uh, more sensitive to their needs. Um, and we like to say that, you know, we align ourselves with the dentist, that we want to catch the cavity before you need a root canal. That A lot of time, preventative care is really the most effective and we see the greatest benefits before it's um, too late. Just like you take care of your physical health, right. your mental health is just as, or if not more important, than um, than taking care of your of exercising and your diet and stuff like that. They go hand in hand, but we 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 like to push people to at least see someone on an annual basis or semi-annual basis. Um, we actually, until the end of the year, we're providing a free initial thirty-minute consult for listeners of. Uh, the Nachum Siegel Network. If you call in and you mention this radio interview, we're Thank actually going to provide or, that or service. Or if you email. You know, email as well. Contact, contact through the website. Either email info at centerforanxiety.org yeah. or call the 1-800-HOTLINE uh, number that's on our website. Yeah, we'll um, give everyone the number in a moment. But that's something that we want to be out there and provide a service and be of, of um, importance to the community. We really want to build a place where people feel safe and comfortable coming in, discussing or consulting or just respect or just you know, doing some self-reflection or just making sure that everything, that the software is uh, is all all in good shape um, and that they're operating at full capacity and really realizing anything and decision-making their goals that they want to accomplish in life and not letting um, a minor, something that could be taken care of relatively easily in the beginning and letting it grow into something that's too late that hey, would require more extensive. You want to eliminate care. roadblocks and hurdles. That's what it's all about. And the earlier you get to it, the easier it is, right, Doctor? No question. Well, you know the construction here in the city, you know. Yes. <laughs> You'd rather fill the pothole than wait till they close down the street. No question um, about that. So, um, so what is it like for Jewish parents to say that their son is at Harvard Medical School? <laughs> <laughs> Quite a lot of it. Is it, <laughs> a lot of is, is it a source of low anxiety when they're able to tell people? 
that their sons at Harvard Medical School? I don't know. You have to ask them. <laughs> I'd have to ask them, huh? I think my parents are decently happy about it. <laughs> and where did you go to Harvard Medical School as a student? I went there as a fellow, and I stayed mm. on, and then I was doing this research on spirituality and mental health, so they decided to offer me a faculty. And degree. what are they on the list of medical schools in this country? Are they number one in the top three, top ten? What is Harvard generally? Uh, I don't know. I'm very, somewhere, somewhere up there? It's probably up there. I don't right. even look anymore, but I'm very happy to be there, I'll tell you. Yeah, I can imagine. It must be very cool. All the kosher restaurants up there in Boston. That's true, right? <laughs> and, and, and you, I would guess you meet a lot of Orthodox students who are who are. We'd be surprised at how many Orthodox students are in the Harvard undergrad and graduate community. Right? Well, in the Harvard system, most right. of them, a lot of them are in the law school. Right, it's a, a good imagine. crew. Yeah. In fact, I recently heard that uh, Base Midrash Gavoa in Lakewood, New Jersey, has one of the highest placement rates for the Harvard Law School in the entire of any quote-unquote college in the entire country how many students could they be sending there I, there are eight to ten a year sometimes no kidding so you might come across 20 to 30 as you as you easily. walk around there during the year easily very interesting in yeah very interesting very interesting dr david ross marin david braid uh it is the center for anxiety uh they're in brooklyn manhattan and rockland county uh, everybody out there is invited. Uh, the women in our community are invited to the event Wednesday, December 6th. Obviously, over the next couple of weeks, we'll remind everybody about that. That's the uh, issue of mental health. What are you eating and what's eating you? Plus, we uh, recommend you check out the recurring events at all of the offices, the OCD support groups, the lunch and learns with skills and strategies for parenting, and all the different community events. Obviously, we'll remind you about them as we get closer and remind you about the ones that take place on a regular basis. The uh, can I give out the eight 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 number for the uh, yeah the eight 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 number for the um, event on the sixth and for any information you need and feel free to use the name Nahum Siegel Network as our guests mentioned this morning one eight 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 three seven seven four seven three eight 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 three seven seven four seven three and the website pretty easy to remember centerforanxiety.org, centerforanxiety.org, worth worth exploring. If any of these issues affect you and your family, doctor, anything you'd like to add? Well, yeah, a couple things. Sure. Really, one of our one of the things that's a, a, a people don't understand about mental health is that it's not a black box. There are very clear skills that people can learn in order to make better decisions in life, in order to prevent anxiety from becoming completely out of control, and in order to treat it even at severe or moderate levels. And often those do not even involve medication, believe it or not. Very simple strategies that people can do um, in order to change their lives for the better. One of them is facing your fear. What are your fears? Hmm, we got a lot of fears. <laughs> sure. I don't have to tell you. I don't have to turn this into a therapy session. But whatever they are, are you pushing yourself to face them on a, on a regular basis? It doesn't have to be daily, but on a weekly, maybe a monthly basis. Getting out of your comfort zone. You got it. Seems to be the 2017 way to refer to it. That's the new way, I guess, yeah, of saying it. But exactly. it's just, it's an old it's an old uh, way of dealing with the with an old problem of uh, of making ourselves stronger and more resilient and more robust. One of the top strategies in clinical science for dealing with anxiety disorders today is facing your fear. It's called exposure therapy and getting yourself out of your comfort zone and dealing with whatever it is that you got to deal with. Um, that is a, a, a clear skill that's uh, associated with people doing a lot better in life. Nice. Hopefully this will help a lot of people in our audience and those out there who would like to explore. We'll check out the Center for Anxiety. Go to centerforanxiety.org, 888-837. 7473. Our guest this morning, Dr. David Ross Marin. He heads the Center for Anxiety at all four of its locations. And David Braid, who's program manager 
for the entire facility. I thank both of you very much for being here this morning. I know it's not easy with the Boston travel and all that, but a real honor to welcome you here this morning, so thank you very much. Thanks. Well, well worth the trip. I appreciate that. David, thank you as well. Thank you very much. We'll be in touch. We'll keep our audience informed. That was our conversation regarding the Center for Anxiety. You can check them out online, centerforanxiety.org. Uh, on a recent edition of uh, JM in the AM, I had the opportunity to speak with a couple of representatives from SaveAChildsHeart.com. SaveAChildsHeart.com. It turns out, after we learned about this organization in a um, roundabout way through an episode of The Good Doctor from uh, ABC, um, that we were able to track down one of the doctors and supporters of the uh, Save a Child's Heart organization, which is based in Cologne, Israel, and speak with them on the air. Uh, SaveAChildsHeart.com is the website. Their organization is our focus now on JM Rewind here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Well, some of you, I'm sure, uh, are aware of a uh, television program that takes place, um, or that airs, rather, on uh, ABC here in the U.S., and that is a a show called The Good Doctor. And uh, it's already made its mark uh, for some of the issues that it addresses. And last week, for those of you who saw the episode and for those of you who didn't, uh, last week, they featured, as part of the episode, an effort uh, made by the uh, hospital staff, by the doctors, to save a life, uh, to save the heart and the life of a uh, a young boy from a foreign country, from an African country. And uh, this was the storyline. After, uh, after the program aired, um, a courtesy of our very own Miriam Wallach, uh, we found out that... Um, David Shore, who created the show, tweeted, if you like tonight's story, please check out at S-A-C-H tweets. And it turns out that S-A-C-H is an organization called Save a Child's Heart. Uh, The website is saveachildsheart.com. And where is it based? As you might suspect, in Israel, in Cologne, Israel. We have two very special guests with us live via telephone. Uh, First, we have uh, Dr. Asa Sagi, head of interventional interventional pediatric cardiology and senior pediatric cardiologist. Uh, he was born and raised in Israel. He, um, in 2014, upon his return to the Wolfson Medical Center, Dr. Asa joined the pediatric cardiology team as lead interventional cardiologist at the Wolfson Medical Center. At this time, he became a lot more involved in the Save a Child's Heart program. He is fully devoted to the Save a Child's Heart Project, and in March of 2015, participated in a mission to Zanzibar and the Tanzanian mainland, evaluating 350 patients. And Dr. Asa Sagi is our first guest with us live via telephone. Dr. Sagi, shalom. Welcome to JM in the AM. Shalom, shalom. Nice to speak with you and to have you here. Also, Judy Shore is with us. Judy grew up in San Francisco. Her parents were from Europe and escaped in 1939 separately to Shanghai. Uh, she's mar- She used to be in the news business, worked for several years for CBS News West Coast Bureau as a field producer, doing news stories for Eye to Eye with Connie Chung and other programs, including the CBS Evening News with Dan Rather. She's married to David Shore, the creator of House and the aforementioned creator of The Good Doctor. They have three kids. They live in L.A., and she's the West Coast co-chair of SAVE, a child's heart. Judy, welcome to JM in the AM. Thank you very much. I'm so excited to be on. I appreciate that. Judy, is this typical? Is it typical that uh, when the writers are looking for a story or when the uh, uh, when the staff of a specific show is made aware of something unique in the industry that they address on their episodes, they would 
literally, you know, lift a story from real life and try to incorporate a very cool project that you're involved with into the show? Um, I think it's unusual. I um, I didn't even know about it, actually. Uh, <laughs> I was traveling with Sligi. We were in Tanzania, and uh, I am actually haven't even been home yet, and I did, wasn't able to watch the episode. I tried to keep up with all of my husband's shows, and <laughs> the next thing I knew... I heard from your show, and then I found out that my husband did all this, which I'm really grateful for. It's just a wonderful, you know, I couldn't see. He's a good guy, my <laughs> husband. I'm really proud that he included Save a Child's Heart in his tweet and yeah. that the episode had to do with a child from Africa who needed heart surgery. Yeah, that it, so, it, it was a gripping episode, I can tell you, and you will certainly enjoy it once you watch it. Um, how long is, and, and, and this question may be better for Dr. Sagi, how, how long has this effort been going on? How long have people from Wolfson been traveling the world to find pediatric cardiac candidates for surgery? Doctor? Uh, Save a Child Heart is a non-financial, uh, non-profitable organization started by Dr. Ami Cohen, an American surgeon who did Aliyah to Israel. Uh, 20 years ago, and actually since then, 20 years, uh, we are having life-saving operation and catheterization, and we treat thousands of children who suffer from uh, cardiac uh, defects and needs uh, life-saving treatment. Uh, and uh, me and Judy, we just came back from nine days of a special mission in Tanzania. Uh, where we went with a group, a big group of uh, medical and volunteer team uh, to save children there in their homeland, in their hospital. So um, unlike the episode then, are, are these surgeries taking place in their hometown or are these patients being flown to Israel for these surgeries? Most of the patients come to Israel. Wow. And the operation and catheterization take place in Cholon, in both the medical center in Israel. But uh, we believe since part of our goal is to train the locals so they can treat in the future the children themselves. So every period we come and work with them in their hospitals so that they can see it's possible to manage and to have this life-saving operation and catheterization in their homeland. And we can, we're doing it for a few years now, and I must say that our team in uh, Dar es Salaam in Tanzania shows an amazing progress year after year. They're already operating by themselves about 100, 200 operations a year. And uh, now the next goal is to enable them to do this uh, advanced catheterization for children by themselves. Uh, Dr. Asasagi is with us, one of our guests. Um, if you're there for nine days, doctor, how many patients are you evaluating in those nine days? So uh, we have been saving lives of uh, 16 children, wow. and we've been evaluating about 300 other children doing echoes and preparing them uh, for their coming to Israel. And I'm just so if you're if you're if you're seeing 300 candidates or potential candidates. Are all of them getting some type of treatment? Are that, that's I'm, I'm trying to understand what it means evaluating and determining who's a candidate, um, you know, to, to undergo these operations. 
we like to say, like, uh, once you're a such child, you'll ever be a such child. Uh, out of this 300, we always have children who we follow up. So once we did an operation or some procedure on a child, we will be follow up this child once a year for all his lifetime. So when we come back every half a year to Tanzania, we also evaluate new children, but as well doing follow-up on the children we already operate. So we see about uh, 50 to 100 new children, 50 to 70 new children. 16 we already operated there at sterilization in Dar es Salaam. And the others will gradually, during the next half year, next year, will come to Israel in groups. And we'll have this uh, operation needed done in Israel, in Cholon, also medical center. Uh, Judy, what's the reaction of the parents when you go to Tanzania when you're there? And I mean, do they understand the scope of this of people coming from so far away to potentially save the life of their kid? Yes, I mean, uh, Tanzania is a very large country with a huge population, and there are people who come for. I mean, for days they travel to get to the hospital so that they're seen by the doctors, and they're so grateful because. Often these um, children have never been seen by a physician before. And uh, what these countries do in many cases is send out a um, message on national radio saying, if your child can't run, if your child isn't acting like other children, if your child has blue lips, there are these Israeli doctors coming at this day and time to this hospital. And um, people line up to see them. So... Uh, you know, these uh, people want to save their children. And uh, on another subject, and I, you know, you, uh, you may maybe you're going to ask me this later. Um, when David and I became interested in Save a Child's Heart, it was uh, at least six years ago when we were touring Israel with the cast from the show House. And one of the locations was Save a Child's Heart um, that they took us to. And David and I had heard about it, uh, but we, you know, you hear about it, but when you see it, it just blew our minds. I mean, it was phenomenal to see in the waiting room uh, Arab parents and Palestinian parents and Israeli parents and mothers from Africa all waiting in the same waiting room. And all they want, they don't care about politics. All they want is for their children to leave the hospital healthy and you know, they're there supporting each other, too, and it's just such an amazing picture. And uh, I'm so proud that you're doing this story today because it needs to get out, and um, they really are changing the world. When we see these kids, and I see these doctors as doves of peace because they're really making a difference. Oh, no question about that. The website is saveachildsheart.com, saveachildsheart.com. And what, got, what really got us into the story is when we found that, obviously, that it's based in Israel. It took amazing pride in the fact that all this effort was coming from Israel. What did your daughters think of the trip, by the way? Well, it was my daughter and my uh, son, my 19-year-old and my 15-year-old, and they were amazing. Um, they really grew up there, you know, seeing what they saw and seeing, you know, in some areas you see some pretty, uh, you see poverty. And um, my kids have been fortunate to grow up in a, in a uh, healthy but uh, 
you know, middle, upper class environments. But um, this was good for them to see how other people live and their struggles and also to see that a kid is a kid and they had a lot of fun with them. They were playing with them in the lobby and keeping them entertained as they were waiting in line to see the medical staff from Save a Child's Heart. <laughs> so um, I think it was really empowering for them. And I know that my daughter is concerned about one girl who will be flown to Israel for heart surgery, and she wants to keep track of what happens to her. So that's really nice. And my son also was, you know, and a boy is going to go to Israel for heart surgery that he also, you know, was playing around with. So it's really, uh, it was very moving for them. Dr. Sagi, not that this is as important as the health part of it, but uh, many of us are always concerned and curious about the political uh, aspect of all of this uh, and the image aspect. Um, it, it, we know, for instance, when you know Israeli uh, rescue teams go around the world, uh, we've heard stories of them delivering babies in the rubble of, uh, of earthquakes and then the parents naming the uh, child Israel for, <laughs> for obvious reasons because they were supported and helped. Uh, by an Israel rescue team. Uh, do the people in Tanzania uh, understand the, um, uh, the, the gesture? I don't want to say sacrifice because you may not like that word uh, in this context, but the gesture of, the, of people from Israel coming and doing this. Yeah, I believe that uh, saving a child's heart, uh, we say we build bridges uh, between people. We build bridges between countries, between religious and the political issue is a non-issue when you're treating a child. Uh, you get attached to the family, to the mother, to the father, whatever language he speaks, whatever religious he believes in, and uh, they're getting attached. I mean, we're getting attached to them as they are attached to us, and uh, it's an amazing uh, opportunity, really, to build these bridges and see how thankful these people are, because this is their last chance to get their child, and they appreciate it a lot. Well, leave it to our brothers and, and sisters in Israel to do it. Uh, also, it's not only the brothers in Israel, I must say, such is not only a medical team. The medical team is coming from Israel, but right. we're working with all the world. We're having people... Uh, uh, giving money and volunteering gives the time and help that this organization will be able to treat the children. And the volunteer help is as important, maybe even more important, than uh, what we are doing. So it's a worldwide organization, I would say. And the Israeli part is the medical team, but uh, this is only one part. And I think Judy is. Uh, part of the volunteer part, which is as important, and this is what's nice about such, that we don't only do medical things. We treat the children, they play with the children. I think the healing process of the child is not only the operation he went through, but all the support he gets after, and this is part of what we also are very happy to take care of. Judy, go ahead, you were saying. I just wanted to say what makes Save a Child's Heart stand out for a number of reasons is our doctors do this as volunteers uh, and also the medical staff. So they really don't ask for any money in return for this. Um, we provide, when a child comes to Israel for surgery, I raise money uh, so that the child has their flight, they have the food and the lodging. 
But they're able to stay with their parent at our children's home in Israel for three months. Um, and the doctors don't ask for any money in return. And it's a very, I mean, what it costs if this happened in America would be so much more. For this, for the three months, it's $15,000, and that's it. That covers the entire three months of care and medical treatment in Israel, which is amazing. And the other point I want to make is that there are a lot of good organizations, nonprofits, helping out children all over the world. What makes Save a Child's Heart stand out is that we train doctors. So we train the first Tanzanian pediatric heart surgeon. There was never one there until a few years ago, and that's because he trained in Israel for five years, and he became the first. Um, so our our mission is to make these countries um, sustainable so that they can do these things on their own. And right now we've um, we're almost completed the training of an Ethiopian doctor, and he will be the first pediatric heart surgeon in his country. And it's very important that it's a pediatric heart surgeon. It's not the same thing as adult surgery. It's it's I mean the details that are involved with the child. Is, is much different. And so he's almost finished his training. Um, and then we also want to do a center of sustainability um, in Romania. So we're working on that as well. So not only is Save a Child's Heart about healing these children, but we want to make these countries able to stand on their own two feet and perform these surgeries on their own as well. Phenomenal. The uh, The website has a headline, Mending Hearts, Building Bridges. Saveachildsheart.com. You can donate right there on the homepage. Dr. Asa Sagi is head of interventional pediatric cardiology and senior pediatric cardiologist at Wolfson in Israel. Uh, Dr. Sagi Tadaraba, thank you so much for joining us. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. And Judy Shore, uh, Judy, you got to tell David he really he really done good in this case. <laughs> yes, he did. Uh, he, uh, when I see him, I, I'll see him tomorrow evening. Um, I haven't seen him in a couple of weeks, so yeah, he really. I'm 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 just so proud and. Thank you. Thank you for everything, and Shabbat Shalom. A pleasure. And Judy is the West Coast co-chair of Save a Child's Heart, Judy Shore, and we thank her as well. And yes, Shabbat Shalom to both of you. The website, saveachildsheart.com. And again, as you heard, medical team based in Israel. That was our conversation on a recent JMN broadcast regarding the organization Save a Child's Heart. Uh, the website, saveachildsheart.com. There are a lot of rumors out there about who the next Prime Minister of Israel is going to be. On a recent edition of JMNAM, I spoke with Gidon Saar, who's been out of the Israeli government for a little while, a few years actually, uh, and now the rumor is that uh, he may be the next leader of Likud and quite possibly the next Prime Minister of Israel. Gidon Saar was on a recent edition of JMNAM. Here's that conversation on this edition of JM Rewind at the Nahum Siegel Network. I want to thank uh, Gidon Saar, who has set aside a couple of minutes for us this morning. Yesterday was Haftet in November, was the 70th anniversary of the UN uh, resolution number 181. It's passing and essentially would let up to the uh, establishment of the state of Israel. And uh, Gidon Saar, who served in the Israeli government for quite a while and has, without any, um, with, with no airs about, the, about them in the, both the media and in the political scene in Israel, is being touted as one of the favorites for the next prime minister of Israel. He is with us live via telephone on this Thursday morning. Uh, Minister Gidon Saar, Shalom, welcome to JM in the AM. Shalom, good morning, Bukitov. 
I appreciate you joining us. Let's start with yesterday. Are you getting the feeling after all the commemorations yesterday that both in Israel and in the diaspora, there is a great appreciation for what happened 70 years ago? Uh, no doubt, uh, it was a, a very meaningful, historical, uh, touching moment in the history of the Jewish people. Uh, but uh, without uh, uh, underestimating, I want to put it in the perspective. Eventually, the state of Israel uh, 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 was established uh, because a very small yeshuv, uh, not more than 650,000 Jews at the time uh, fought in a war uh, that was imposed against us by seven Arab armies that invaded our country. And their uh, um, uh, war and their uh, brave uh, stand those days, that brought to the establishment of the State of Israel. The UN decision was uh, an important think Zionism was always uh, thought about uh, being uh, recognized in the um, international law, international uh, community. But the most important thing was the fact that was created in our land by our people at that time. Great point. Gidon Sar is with us live via telephone. Uh, it, it, people are, are fascinated by your political and non-political career, all the time you spent in the Knesset and as a minister, education, interior, etc. Now people are looking, obviously it's no secret, so many are predicting that you're going to jump back in to the Israeli political scene. Is it easier to help the state of Israel while being a member of government, or is it easier to help the state of Israel while not in the government? Uh, well, uh, you can always help, but uh, no doubt uh, uh, it is. Uh, you can do more when you are uh, a minister. I served uh, six years as a minister, uh, 12 years as a uh, member of the Knesset. I took a break uh, because uh, of uh, family reasons, and uh, it was very important for me to devote time to my f- family after uh, almost consistent uh, 20 years in public service, but I announced uh, I will come back, and uh, this is what I'll do in the next election. It'll be very interesting to watch, and you know, you know about all the speculation out there. I, I wonder what you think of the um, uh, of the uh, amazing uh, dedication of some of the members of the diaspora to the state of Israel. I'm sure you're aware about this record-breaking number of tourists, and obviously that includes Jews and non-Jews that have visited Israel in 2017. Do you feel this uh, bridge between Israel and the diaspora getting smaller and smaller? There are concerns, and uh, last uh, last year especially, we had uh, a very uh, difficult moment, but uh, we are brothers, and uh, the state of Israel really uh, uh, established and belongs not only to the Jews, that uh, were privileged to live in, but also to our brothers in the diaspora. Uh, and uh, whoever uh, says some, something uh, um, which is not sensitive about our brothers in the diaspora, brothers and sisters, is hurting all of us. 
Uh, and uh, this is something we should uh, be um, very sensitive. And uh, I was very sorry uh, to hear things that were said by uh, Deputy Minister uh, uh, a, f- a few days ago. I, I am actually she apologized. Uh, it is very important that we will recognize that we all share the same destiny, the same future, and the same heritage. Oh, okay, and I appreciate that. Gidon Sar, finally, um, w- would you prefer that the prime minister and the government call for elections sooner rather than later, or are you ready to be as patient as necessary? I, I am patient, and I think from the national point of view, it is better to have long terms. As a minister, uh, at the time I was minister of education, I enjoyed for four years in office. It was very significant to complete reforms uh, I started. So from the national point of view, it is very important that elections will be in their time, which is 2019. I hope uh, uh, that's what will happen. And uh, myself, I have enough patience. Uh, I, I intend to serve my people uh, for a long time afterwards. And uh, the most important thing is what's good for our country. Kalakavod, greatly appreciate you taking a few minutes for us this morning. Todarabat to you. Thank you all. Shabbat shalom. There he is, Gidon Sar, at one time minister, of course, in the Israeli government, served many years in the Knesset, flattered that he accepted our invitation to speak to this audience as he continues this very interesting journey. Everybody, uh, I mean, it's no secret, certainly. Um, I don't want to say everybody, but many in the media and in many political circles are predicting that he very, very well could be the next prime minister of Israel. Gidon Sar. Gidon Sar. That was our conversation with him. He is uh, favored, according to the media, to be the next prime minister of Israel. We'll see what happens. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of JM Rewind, an opportunity for us to check out some of the interviews and guests that we featured recently on JM and the AM. Plenty more coming up. Thanks for keeping it here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Ma 
Oh, yeah.